Welcome to the Coaching Revealed podcast series on leadership coaching. I'm one of your hosts, Austin Matzel. This episode features an interview between Dr. Jeffrey Hull, the Executive Director of the Institute of Coaching, and Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, a licensed psychologist and executive coach. Dr. Orbe Austin is not only a distinguished keynote speaker and webinar presenter, but is also the author of two best-selling books on imposter syndrome. Join us as we explore her journey into the world of coaching, her expertise in leadership development, and the profound impact of imposter syndrome on individuals and organizations. Dr. Orbe Austin shares her personal experiences from struggling with imposter syndrome in her academic career to becoming a leading expert in the field. We'll uncover practical tools and the interventions she developed, drawing on extensive research and her work with clients. Plus, we'll explore the critical role of systemic change in organizations to combat imposter syndrome. Whether you're a coach, leader, or someone interested in personal growth, Dr. Orbe Austin offers an insightful conversation as well as practical strategies to overcome imposter syndrome. Thank you for tuning in to Coaching Revealed. Let's get started. So welcome everyone to the Institute of Coaching podcast, Coaching Revealed. And my name is Jeffrey Hull. I'm the executive director of the Institute of Coaching. And we are super excited to be doing our first series of podcasts with the Institute. And our first guests are all experts in the space of leadership and executive coaching. And today, I have the honor of interviewing one of our top thought leaders with the Institute, Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, who has been with us a number of times. She has been a keynote speaker at our conference with Harvard Medical School sponsored conference. She's been a webinar speaker a number of times. She's been on our CoachX Live event. So she's well known to our um, members at the Institute of Coaching and truly one of the top thought leaders in leadership coaching, and in particular around an area where she has written two wonderful books on imposter syndrome. So we're going to dig in today to a little bit of her background and how she came into being um, in the world of executive coaching and working with leadership teams, and also how she came to write these great books that she has shared with us over the last couple of years. So welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I'm excited to be here. It's super fun to have you with us. For those of you who are not familiar with Dr. Orbe Austin's background, let me just take a quick minute to share a little bit before we dive into our interview. So Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin is a licensed psychologist and executive coach, as I mentioned, and is very well known for her expertise in imposter syndrome. But she's also an expert in career advancement, leadership development. She has been working with high potential managers and executives for over 20 years. She consults with organizations in the private sector, nonprofits, educational institutions, in supporting their employees and senior leadership teams to address gender bias, diversity, equity, and inclusion, leadership development, effective communication, team cohesion, and managing conflict. And I always start when I'm interviewing someone that has a specialty like you have, Lisa, around imposter syndrome to take a little bit of a journey backwards for us into how this topic came to be so meaningful for you 
and a little bit of your history, because I think people are always curious. Um, you don't just wake up one day and write two best-selling books on a particular topic. And you don't just, you know, jump out of the womb as a top leadership coach in these in this kind of space. So start by giving us a little bit of background. How did you come to this work? What happened to you in your life that led to these topics being so important to you? Yeah, so uh, for me, I always thought I'd be a doctor. I didn't actually realize I would be a psychologist. I always thought I'd be a pediatrician. If I track it back, beginning to recognize that my imposter syndrome had been happening for a very, very long time. you know. And so the topic of imposter syndrome is really important to me because I've lived with it. Um, for most of my academic career, probably I would say probably all of my academic career. And then, you know, for, for the beginning pieces of my work, you know, life. And I think, you know, I, that was probably a really hard moment for me because um, I had been a good student and solid student. And then I go to college to actually execute on my dreams and I'm failing out of school. So tell us a little more about that. How could yeah. that possibly have happened to you? You know, I was struggling the the leap from, you know, I went to a private high school, like I had been prepped, so, you know, but I just really struggled with the leap from high school to college. My parents were first generation immigrants. They did not go to college. They really didn't know how to help me. Their help was like study more or we're going to pull you from school. They were really intense around sort of like um, their approach because they were scared. Um, you know, I was the first kid in their family to go to college. They really just didn't want me to fail at this. And so I was trying to do this all on my own, trying to survive it. But I literally had a 1.7 GPA the first semester and a 1.9 the second semester. I remember sitting in the dean's office where he was saying like, look, we've got to figure something out or you're going to end up getting like expelled. Um, and I had a lot of science classes. I had a calculus class, chem, bio. So there was like no safety net. There was no like... Wow. And was that your choice to have all those science courses so early I on? I was and- pre-med. So it was a requirement to start out that way. And, you know, in essence, okay. like it's the weeding out. So they tell you in the first day, look to your right, look to your left. You know, two of you won't be here at the end. And so you feel, you feel it. Everything is about Did the weeding out. Did you get into out. one of the top schools? Like this I, was yeah. a good school? I went to Boston College. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it was a real big struggle for me. And I think, you know, having that, I remember having a conversation with my dad on Easter break and I told him what was going, he knew, but I, I told him sort of what had happened with the dean. And, you know, he just out of his own fear pretty much said like, you know, you either next semester get like a 3.9. You're going to get a three. And I don't even think he understood how, how do you go from a one seven to a three nine or you come home. And that's the time my parents were living in Georgia. And I really didn't want to go home to, I remember sort of figure, trying to figure out like, what could I do? I clearly can't stand the sciences. And it, but it would mean giving up this dream that I'd always had to be a pediatrician. Um, so I, I remember sort of like thinking about during that break, like I'm going to change my major. And the only thing I was doing well in was English, um, oh. and Spanish. I was doing well in Spanish, but I don't think I was going to change to Spanish. So I, I changed my major to English, uh, English lit. And, um, I then, you know, and, and he was also my, that dad was also pretty angry about that. He was like, you speak English. I don't understand what you're going to do with yeah. that. Like, but I knew I had to, to do well in order to stay. And to be very honest, I wasn't actually having the greatest time at Boston College in general. So I, I just was more determined to kind of want to succeed. That was more the thing I was struggling to do. And so I changed my major to English and I was excellent at it. And I actually got that 3.9 that first semester and did like really well, like the remaining semesters I was in school. Um, and then I started thinking, maybe I want to be a writer. And I ended up in a senior 
level prose writing class, um, which I was so excited about. It was a really small, like, you know, capstone class with like an actual, instead of like a professor, it was like someone who'd actually written number of books. It was really super exciting. And we had to write these pieces of like fiction. And um, she was really hard on me. First time I was began to struggle again um, in, in something I had done really well in, very painful. And so I started to believe like, I just really am not going to be a great writer. Um, I'm just, I'm just someone who does well in classes and I just don't have the ability to write. And so that left me once again, kind of unmoored and kind of like, I don't know what I'm going to do after graduation. And so I went home to Georgia um, over the summer that I graduated. And I remember having a particular week in which I actually had like tonsillitis um, and I was really sick and sort of, oh, I think I had a fever and sort of was very kind of like out of it. But I remember feeling like I need to decide right now what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Oh my um, and I, and I think it was under the fever and the kind of, I was in a, like a febrile, like kind of like a strange state. And I was like, oh, I had been an RA and I was like, maybe I'd be a good counselor. Maybe I'd be a good psychologist. And once I got better, I'd ask my dad if he knew anybody who was a psychologist. And I ended up talking to somebody in his EAP who was a counseling psychologist and actually had been an English major undergrad. Uh And she was like, you know, if you want to go a particular direction, go counseling because they're not going to expect that you had psychology undergrad. You're not going to have to take the psych theory. And she's like, we deal with, you know, kind of adaptive conditions. We don't, our, our kind of work is in kind of adaptive work, like strength-based work, kind of not in pathology. And so I was like, okay, I really don't want to probably work in a hospital or do things like that. So that, that actually fits what I'm interested in doing. So then I applied, I took a year off, applied for some programs and ended up in, at, you know, at Boston College again, working on my master's degree. And it was fortunate for me because I ended up getting to work with like one of the premier like psychologists in psychoanalysis and object relations work. And he was brilliant and he was such a great teacher and a real supportive, like he was so accomplished, but he had us like who were master students, like working in clinical work for the first time, but was so kind to us. And so like, and he was tough with some people. And I think I didn't get that tough brunt, but he was really supportive of my work. And, and it made me feel like I could go on to get a doctorate because I'm a counseling psychologist. One of the things we're trained in is career. Um, because that's how we split off from clinical. Um, in the 1950s, um, there was a split from clinical, um, where we started working with vets coming back from, uh, World War II. And we ended up developing vocational tests and helping them to retrain and thinking about how to use their skills to do, to do different things. Um, and that's where we began, began our field. And so we still have a tradition of, of strong training in career development. And so we take many, many courses in career development. We take externships in career. We get trained in testing. And so while it was something that was a part of my training, I never thought that I would actually pursue it. I had jobs in it, like, you know, to get through grad school, but I never thought I'd actually pursue it. And then um, when we started our practice, um, you know, in like 2007, the recession hit soon after and we had a career piece to our practice, but it was the only thing that survived, you know, during that time, during 2008, is people were coming to get support on career issues, but not necessarily the psychotherapy issues. And so that's when our, that's when it began is the work on the career and leadership and, and actually formally in the practice. And so, um, a fortuitous also kind of like moment in which we use the skills that, you know, we had to kind of, you know, survive a difficult, difficult time economically. And when did you first come to recognize both that imposter syndrome 
was real and something that you wanted to pay attention to or study or become an expert in, or that you yourself had suffered from it. Ready to advance your coaching practice? Join the Institute of Coaching and tap into the world's leading resource for coaching science and professional development. With over 4,000 members across 130 countries, the IOC offers invaluable networking opportunities with an elite global coaching community and innovative learning to broaden your knowledge and keep you at the forefront of coaching best practices. Engaging cutting-edge learning events with world-renowned coaching scholars, from webinars and seminars to discussion groups, research projects, and more. Try any membership free for 30 days. Use promo code IOCpodcast and visit instituteofcoaching.org backslash join to get started. Yeah, I think, you know, it was grad school that I got, you know, when I was in my PhD program, I first got introduced to it, like briefly kind of in passing because, you know, imposter syndrome, it's really termed academically imposter phenomenon, but imposter phenomenon is, is not a pathology. It's not considered a diagnosis. So we don't spend a lot of time in graduate school really dealing with it. It's a passing thing. People note, and then they move on. Um, but I think when I heard it, I was like, oh my God, like, that's me. Like, I've been dealing with this my whole life, feeling like not good enough, that I don't belong. And so feeling like that constantly. And even when I was in Columbia, I always felt like that I was one second from being gone there. And I think I had had so many experiences where I just didn't feel good enough and didn't have a lot of support around me to kind of have a different narrative that I just kind of always I internalized that notion. And so I think it was when I first realized it, but I didn't also, they didn't teach me like at that point what to do about it. There was no like, and here are the interventions that work. No, it's right. just like, here's this concept. And so I just thought, this is something I'm going to live with the rest of my life. Um, I just really have to kind of just understand that it's happening. Nobody really did the work on imposter syndrome. No, no clinician really knew how to treat it because it's not considered a diagnosis. And I think that's where the opening for coaches is, is because, you know, Psychologists are not really doing this work. Um, licensed mental health professionals are not really doing this work because it's not considered a diagnostic criteria. There's a lot of opening for coaches to actually do the work um, and actually be able to be helpful for clients because I've heard so many of the people that I've worked with say, I've went to a number of therapists, I went to a number of, of coaches even, and I could not get anyone who understood the concept and how to deal with it directly. I didn't want to be treated for my anxiety. I didn't want to work on these like affirmations and silly things that kind of didn't feel like they were actually dealing with the, the, the issue. I really wanted to concentratedly deal with this. And so that, that became sort of my passion. So I started writing about it, like blogging about imposter syndrome in different ways and sort of, you know, de- diving deep into the literature. There's like 40 years of research on it. Um, so I just started reading it and like starting to talk about it. And then a publisher happened to come upon. Um, my blogs and said, we want to put out a book on imposter syndrome. And I think you'd be the perfect person. They called us out of the blue. And I was like, is this for real? Um, we started Googling them and trying to make sure that they were legit. And they were. Um, and that's where, it, that's where it began. So, so when did your own post- imposter syndrome finally release itself from you? Or Yeah. I mean, I think it took a while. It took many years of sort of trying to kind of like, you know, take risks and put myself out there and try different things that I never allowed myself to try to, to, that it probably started to release. Writing the first book was very hard for me. It was, it was emotionally very triggering given my previous experience with writing and and hearing about my writing. But I think also to writing about all these concepts that were so relevant to me and feeling like, how am I an expert on this? Like, how did I get here? Like, why, you know, 
why should I be doing this? Um, was constantly plaguing me. And I think when I was working on the TEDx talk, I was, I was doing all the things that people with imposter syndrome do. And I was like procrastinating and I was like, not necessarily, I was self-sabotaging and I was not dealing with it. And Richard was like, you do realize that this is your imposter syndrome in action. And you need to deal with this because what's going to happen is you're going to go out there and it's going to, it's going to go, it's going to go sideways and you're going to feel like you're not good enough. And that's not what's happening here. When did you start working with clients or doing coaching around this topic? It's always been my love. So like, cause I, I've dealt with it and I wanted to free as many people as I possibly could from it. So I have probably been doing it since the beginning of my practice. It was my favorite kind of client, like a client who is amazing. And then just came in being like, I'm not good enough. I don't belong where I am. Like everyone's going to find out. And that was my favorite client. Cause I could envision their future. I could see where they were going to be like, you know, and I could see what, what was being held back as a result of the imposter syndrome. So getting them there was super fun. Even, even though clearly painful for them as they're traversing it, the outcome is just getting them to a concrete outcome that they, they desire is just like super enjoyable. I'm curious when you're going in to do a leadership group or working with leaders in general, either individually or in a group setting, when you spot imposter syndrome in action, how do you, do you have a technique for how you get to the point or the place where you can actually share that? with the individual that maybe they have it or? Yeah, I think, you know, people, I think because I share my story a lot and I, I feel very comfortable talking about my own struggle, people are quick to kind of like um, admit to me that they might be struggling with it or ask me if they think, you know, so I think people are quite open with me because I'm open with them, um, especially in like tra- trainings. And I mean, I'm probably not sharing it individual work, but, you know, people who've found me individually, especially now, have heard some of it. Um, but I think, you know, people are quite quick to kind of, you know, want to know what my assessment of it is. Um, and I think that's really lovely because I do think the first step is being able to identify that you're struggling with this. For them to recognize that that's what they are being con- controlled by to a certain extent. Yeah. And there's so much that it does control. Like, you know, the research shows that it actually does diminish your kind of understanding of what's out there for you career-wise. You have a a limited scope of understanding of what you can do. It suggests that you actually tend to not negotiate your salary or ask for promotions. You're waiting for someone to give it to you. So as a result, you tend to be underpaid. So there's so many different ways that it's actually affecting your work life that appear as sometimes hidden. Um, so I do think like being able to identify it's so important. And that's probably why, you know, the whole kind of new controversy around imposter syndrome and like stop telling women that they have imposter syndrome and this stop telling women of color that they have imposter syndrome is so agitating to me because you're actually putting them back in the closet. You're putting, mm-hmm. you're telling them to go back in and you're telling them because it doesn't exist for them. And there's no research, there's zero research to suggest that this particular common Thing that's getting said today is true. Um, and so it is terribly disturbing to me. And it really kind of, it just really gets me pretty angry <laughs> because I just feel like it's so detrimental um, because there are times in which systems are incredibly oppressive and yet people don't have imposter syndrome. Um, you know, I often use really simply I use my husband as an example. My husband is a black man in America and he, you know, ha- never has struggled with imposter syndrome. He has been in situations where people felt like he didn't belong. He didn't, and he never believed it. Um, he, I've worked with him in many settings and he doesn't ever buy 
buy that narrative because he doesn't that struggle because with of emotions. a different childhood experience. Yeah, maybe? he had a very yes, he had a very different childhood experience. He had a different, very different understanding of his skills and capabilities. He had a very different upbringing. Although we had a lot of similar, we also have, we both have immigrant parents, and but his experience was very, very different from mine. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's it's not an either or situation. Not every person who's a person of color has imposter syndrome. Not every woman has imposter syndrome. Um, like, I don't like that, that stuff either, where it's like, everyone has imposter. No, everyone does not have imposter syndrome. Some people don't have, don't have imposter syndrome. And some people have the opposite of imposter syndrome, which is Dunning-Kruger, which is when you think you're an expert and you're not. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, how did you, and maybe you and your husband first start to create some of the tools that you write about in both books? One being the first book being more individual focused, the second one, including some of the more systemic and organizational, but there's a lot of practical. I mean, I I've read both of your books and we've talked about this before. They're like roadmaps, but how did you then go from research to practical steps that coaches might be wanting to use with clients, which is what your work shows? Yeah. I think for us, it was really about, we didn't want to talk about this theoretically. We wanted people to actually be able to have the skills to move on. Um, and especially because the research had shown that was possible. Um, and that, so some of the tools are based on the actual research-based you know, tools that were actually helpful. Um, th- that was the easy part, which is the, th- that sort of was some of the, the, a lot, there were a lot of holes. There were a lot of sort of research pieces that didn't necessarily give an intervention that would be helpful. They were just like, this is typically helpful. Like for example, um, community is helpful. So community can be a, a buffering experience around imposter syndrome and it can be helpful to have a certain community. So for us, when we were dealing with that chapter around like, okay, community is helpful, but then what do we say? Build a community. We had to think about sort of like with our clients, you know, ones who had struggled with imposter syndrome, how did we help? What did we help them build around them in terms of other people, other networks, other relationships? And what were the kind of archetypes of people that we were thinking about that were incredibly helpful for them? And so that's how we built this concept of the dream team and had the different archetypes of people that you want to have amongst um, that community, like strategic. So how to build your community is the key, not just having community. Yeah. And it's not just community, right? Because if they have to understand how the imposter syndrome works for you, because a lot of people will tell me, you know, people tell me I shouldn't even have this. Like, why am I talking about this? I'm amazing, but I, I don't feel it. And I don't want someone to dismiss my actual experience. Right. Um, you really have to have some people who understand what's happening and then can support you in ways that are actually relevant to your own recovery of it. In some of these concepts that had been kind of just talked about theoretically, how do we put some practical kind of exercise intervention that really helps people understand like what we're trying to help them build or grow or the skill we're trying to help them attain? What is your current now that you've now that you've done these books and you're um, kind of drawing that line between the the individual experience of imposter syndrome across through to the team and then into the organizational system? Are you finding that the that there is an emphasis that needs to happen one direction or the other in terms of creating it, like workplaces that are not infested with the imposter syndrome? <laughs> it's such a good question, Jeff. No one's really asked me that question. I love that question because I think what you know with all this talk about the system, the system, the system, like you don't have imposter syndrome, like people have been very reluctant to do the systemic work. Um, you know, like people are people are very keen to do the individual work in book one um, and they do it really successfully and it's really exciting. And then when we come to the systemic work and the leadership work, because a lot of the second book talks about 
as a leader, as a manager in your organization, like how do you be, how are you responsible for making sure that you have environments that are non imposter syndrome like right. triggering? And there's been a lot of reluctance to do that work that, that this book has been a lot harder to kind of push and people, it's hard to identify a person responsible for the system. Um, that, you know, it becomes this, you know, amorphous thing that, you know, feels like it can kind of really control you, but everyone has responsibility in the system. True. And so like, one of the things that we are talking about in the book is that the system is a problem, but here's how we begin to change it is begin to identify what is your role in the system and how are you playing it and how do you play it differently? Um, And I think that's a really hard thing for people to own because oftentimes there's a very kind of antagonistic kind of notion with the system. The system did this to me. This is, but if you're in the system, you potentially are participating in some of this, even if passively, a lot of what I'm working on with clients, especially clients in leadership positions who are feeling their org is like, is toxic or difficult is trying to create safe and they want to stay is trying to create safe harbors within their team. And so you can do it. I've seen it many, 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 many times where you can create a safe harbor where people feel in your, in your particular team, in your particular like atmosphere, this stuff is not allowed. It's not acceptable. And when you go outside of that, that team atmosphere into the giant, the bigger org, you're also not going to promote that. You know, you're going to be the person who kind of advocates for a healthier kind of place to be. And you're going to also look for connections within that leadership team to kind of make sure you're not all on your own either. Mm-hmm. Um, but once they are able to do it, they also find safety in their team. They also feel a sense of like trust and safety because the team also operates under those conditions. So they're also safer there. And so I do think it's like, it's hard for people to take ownership, I think, of the pieces that you need to work on, you know, that can change a system. You really need to take up ownership and really build coalitions and opportunities to kind of build bigger, bigger presences of, of safety. What do you think is the intersection, or is there one, between Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety? Oh, complete right? intersection. Like we talk about in the book, her work. Um, in the second book, we talk about sort of the, the number one need, um, I think in these organizations, when you're trying to avoid imposter syndrome is having psychological safety is sort of having the ability to kind of dissent in an organization. And also we talk about for us, psychological safety goes beyond dissent. It goes to like being able to be accepted for who you are, the complete person that you are, um, in that in that environment. Um, and I think that's something we, because it then leads to us to inclusivity and diversity and equity and really those kinds of issues that are also simultaneously very important, um, in creating safe spaces, um, for people, um, so that they don't feel like they don't belong. I guess what I'm sitting with right now, and I'm just curious what your comment would be about it. When I think about my leadership clients, they are all very welcoming of Amy Edmondson's work. Like there's something about it that's very palatable to them, yeah. but they find imposter syndrome harder to bring up. Yeah. Is, is, and I wonder why. I'm uh, agreeing though. Like, I think that's uh, all true. Like, I think it is considered more psychologically based. They don't feel like they can bring something that that's psychological into, uh, even though the word psychological is in safety, but they, but this idea of psychological safety is like, we can all create a space in which people can descend at where imposter syndrome is like, it very sort of located in sort of this idea of you can have an imposter syndrome triggering environment. As I was telling you my story, you know, when I talked about like Tufts, um, you know, and when I went to Tufts, I felt safe there. I felt safe there. I felt free there. I felt like I was, I belonged there. I felt like I was good enough to be there. And yet 
couple years down the road, I don't feel good enough to be somewhere else because that environment's completely different. And so I do think like that piece around sort of the culture and the environment. And look, if you're doing the psychological safety work, you're doing the beginning of the work. It's not the whole, it's not the whole shebang. It's not everything that you need to be doing, but it is the first step. I think one of the things that's, that's coming up for me as we get sort of into this deeper intersection between leadership and organizational safety and, um, you know, bringing these themes into coaching, I can think of a number of situations where I've had a leadership client who was actually part of the problem. At the end of the day, it was most likely because of their own imposter syndrome. They had a tendency to create a kind of toxic imposter syndrome in the team. Yes. And getting them to be aware of that very challenging as a coach. I just had one recently. It's a, you know, a leader, a really well-intentioned guy. He basically came to me and he said, Jeff, I want you to come and give a talk on wellness and resilience. And, <laughs> and I said, gosh, I've been down that road. Yeah. But like, he's, cause he's like, oh, everybody acts very burnt out and they all seem very tired and I don't really know what to do. And I'm kind of thinking the way you're even telling me to fix it feels like you're putting it on me. And I have hard time to share with him that he may need to look at his own leadership. Like, yes. So I have, I'm really curious what you're, if you've seen this kind of thing. I've seen exactly that. Um, (laughs) And so typically you don't want me to come in and do like a burnout talk because I'm going to make you think about what you're doing as a leader. Um, because Which is, by the way, is exactly what I said to him. I, I said, I think you and I need to do some coaching together rather than me coming in and trying to be the expert to give yeah. a talk. Right? Yeah. Because it's essence being like, you guys are not working hard enough and you know, you, you're, you're lazy and you're not, you're not resilient enough. Meanwhile, they're probably burnt out to the crisp because of his potential management style. And so we have a whole chapter on the new book about leadership pitfalls directly related to imposter syndrome. One of them kind of micromanaging, being overly involved in other people's work because you want it to be perfect. You don't want to reflect poorly on you, kind of modeling overworking. So you're, you're kind of like, you're, you may even say you want more work-life balance, and, but you're not modeling that. You're expecting people to over-function, overwork. Um, like you want to point to the whole organization, but what are you, the first time, the first thing you got to do is what am I doing? And you have to have a really honest reflection as to kind of like, is there anything I'm doing that might be contributing to their burnout, to their lack of resilience? That, that is might... the core question. What you just said is yeah. the core question is what, is there anything that I might be doing? It's the first question you need to ask <laughs> this collaborative leadership style, you know, of really asking people what they need and then figuring out how you can show up for them. Um, and delivering, you don't have to do deliver exactly what they want, but finding some way to kind of make them feel seen and heard. So they feel a part of what is happening. I hear this all the time from leaders that I work with imposter syndrome is like, but I'm the leader I'm supposed to know. Um, and it's like, no, that's not what leadership is supposed to be. You know, everything and everyone knows less, you know, that's not what leadership has to be. Um, and so really letting them not know and letting them have to discover, Letting them be open to changing things in the in the environment and taking responsibility, all of these things can be really hard because I think oftentimes, like with this leader that you're talking about, like if if he's able to open up to you and talk about what's going on in his own world, you know, like I imagine it's super painful and where he feels a ton of responsibility for them, which is why he tries to then try to offload some of the responsibility to you, like make them unburned out. You know, it's like that's not a magic wand kind of thing. That's a 
a kind of like team effort, like, and mostly leading right. with you. And what about, what about your thoughts coaching upward? Because we've been talking about the leaders that you've worked with that may want to take on creating psychological safety or addressing those kinds of issues. But if you're really going to take on the system, you also have to go this way. Because oftentimes you're dealing with other leaders who have very different understandings of how to, how to kind of get the best work out of their employees um, and the way that they engage with them. But I do think one of the things that has been pretty consistent that I've seen is that when they do create these spaces of these psychologically safe spaces that really are kind of focused on safety, the team performs well. And oftentimes that gets recognized and Mm -hmm. that's an opportunity for them to kind of then to kind of talk about what they've been doing. That's different. um, That has gotten the performance to be at a different level. And so, and to be very clear about what that is and that it's not driving them into the ground, that it's actually, you know, making sure that they, you know, they have lives and that they're supporting that and that they don't necessarily are not demanding people to be in the office when, when it costs them three hours to travel or really thinking concretely about how do you suggest to other people when they're saying, why is your team doing so well? What are you doing to actually tell them and to really have a philosophy around it that, and the people will be curious. Yeah, I appreciate that. There's two or three really key big takeaways in what you just said. Think about creating that success domain or that success dynamic, psychologically safe, high-performing, collaborative, empowering within that team, within your team, and then be very clear. You repeated this a couple of times, and it's really powerful to be able to articulate how you did it when someone asks, right? Yes. Not to just do it and say, shrug your shoulders or whatever, but really to have some data, to have some very specific. um, Yes. Key points that you have done and not be like, oh, I don't know. Or like, they're just great. You know, you need to have some real concrete philosophy as as to how this came to be, because it's not magical. You did some work to kind of create that opportunity. You know, when coaches talk to you, which I'm sure they do at conferences and different you know, what do you recommend that they think about to take on to become good at this the way you are? I mean, I think it is so important to kind of like have the skill in your repertoire because so many people are out there dealing with this. I mean, the numbers like 70% of people are dealing with this. So a lot of people you're going to come across are going to deal with it. And they're looking for concrete solutions to for help. They're, they don't want like a deep dive into the, their path. They want to figure out how to get through this pretty quickly. And so I would suggest really kind of understanding the concept, like step away from the social media posts and like step away <laughs> from that and go into resources that are going to be like really concretely helpful to your practice. So the book is really accessible. It's not meant to kind of alienate anyone. It's really accessible. There are actual concrete tools you can use in practice. And I have actually used them with my clients directly from the book when they refuse to do the book. <laughs> was that I'll just do the book for them in, in session. So it is really concrete, really accessible, really able to be utilized. Um, we're actually, um, I think I was probably one of the first times I get to say this, but um, the American Psychological Association is putting out a book on imposter phenomenon that will come out next year. I have a chapter oh, wow. in that book. Um, it's with all the top leaders in imposter phenomenon. I'm talking about practical applications and different things that we know. So use the resources that are like solid, you know, in terms of that. And don't use the resources you see on social and even in like popular press. Um, It will help give you a repertoire of things to do. You can pull that directly into your work. And also, if you want to learn more, I have a course 
um, on how to, how to overcome it. So you can actually take it and see sort of like the different things utilized. There's a lot of resources in there. There's a lot of tools, there's a lot of exercises. So you can totally like utilize that in your work. And it is, we've seen in our work that you can reduce imposter by 30% in about 14 weeks. So it is perfect uh, for the coaching model. Let me ask you also to comment on, and you've done this on your programs with us before, but um, whether or not if you're a coach working with someone from a minority, do you think that that is particularly relevant around imposter syndrome? Yes. And if so, how would you address it? Yeah, it is particularly relevant. I think it's really important for coaches to become competent and sort of like in culturally competent in the work that they do to make sure that different populations they serve, they understand sort of the research-based kind of things that are going on for them. And also to sort of like understanding what they may be dealing with that's different from the majority culture. So we have a particular chapter actually in both books. Um, In the first book, it talks about sort of the research on sort of the individual. In the second book, we talk about identity, all the different identity components that are, have been shown in the research to have an impact on imposter syndrome. So I do think reading those chapters is going to be important. We lay it out pretty clearly there, but also to making sure that you understand that this may be different and may look different. And, you know, we talk about in the first book about the double impact and we talk about in the second one too, a double impact of imposter syndrome. So when you're dealing with someone from a group which is underrepresented or dealing with sort of some kind of bias or discrimination, they're experiencing both the internal impact of imposter and then they have an external experience that you need to be able to validate and see where they're often being told they are not good enough, they don't belong, they're here because of their identity, even in kind of subtle kind of, you know, microaggressive ways, you need to be able to validate that and not be telling them, no, that's not what's happening or that happens to everyone because it is invalidating of their experience. You really need to be able to understand the context, which is reinforcing the imposter syndrome for them and telling them, yeah, you aren't, you aren't good enough to be here. Um, and you need to help them build a community, usually around um, their own identities or the identities that are impacted that are either lateral or senior to them that can help them deal with this strategically in the workplace. And so they need community that's similar to them that can really help them deal with this in the outside world and to not invalidate it ever, um, to really serve as a person who listens and hears it and believes it, it is true and really helping them to kind of then figure out what do they need behind them to kind of deal, deal with that environmental impact as well. Great. Yeah, I think it's so important that we, all of us need to be continuously on a learning journey to upgrade yes. our cultural competency and our awareness of I mean, I like to use the term intersectionality, and I'm not remembering the woman who who coined the term, but um, you know, Jennifer Brown writes about it in her book on books on inclusion, and it's so important because it's not just race, it's not just gender, it's there's socioeconomic issues, mm-hmm. where you grew up, or you know, what country you're from, what languages you speak. I mean, so many different um, diverse components that can impact. What kind of self-esteem you have within what the environment? In what environment? And it can change from environment to environment. So it's so important to become educated about it and really to also understand your client's unique experience because your education on it may be not exactly what they're experiencing. And so you really want to make sure that you fully understand their experience too. Right. Right. That's so great. Well, I am so grateful to the for you getting over your own imposter syndrome <laughs> so that you could share the uh, knowledge that you gained about yourself with the world because it's really, really powerful. And um, we at the Institute so of Coaching are grateful 
that you've shared with, with us are so many different times. And we hope oh. to see you again when you come out with the third one. Yes, um, I have plans. <laughs> I'm sure you're on a roll, right? Give you an opportunity to just share as we go out here, where can folks find you? Where's the best place to find Dr. Orbe Austin? Yeah, work. so you can find me on Instagram at, doc, at Dr. Obey Austin. I'm also pretty engaged on LinkedIn. Um, and I'm a LinkedIn top voice there. So I'm pretty busy there. And um, also too, we have a course coming out. So what we call it the Imposter Syndrome Bootcamp. That course can be taken whenever you want. So um, that will be out. So you can find that on my website, dynamictransitionsllp.com. And so... A lot of different ways we can find you. Yes. And one of those is also at instituteofcoaching.org, <laughs> where you'll see, I think you did two Coachex for us, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Yes. You were one of our very first victims. <laughs> when we were it's first a learning. wonderful experience. So yeah. I didn't feel like a victim at all. <laughs> it was great fun. So yes. anyway, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much. So, I appreciate you. Thank you all for joining us. And uh, we'll see you all again very soon. Take care. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Coaching Revealed brought to you by the Institute of Coaching. You can learn more about the Institute on our website at instituteofcoaching.org. You can stay up to date with new episodes of our podcast by liking and following Coaching Revealed. You can also find us on social media on LinkedIn, Instagram, and X with the handle Institute of Coaching. We also love hearing from our guests. So please reach out to us with thoughts you have on this episode and any questions you have about coaching. Until next time, this is Emily Tarani with Coaching Revealed.